Hello, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. My name is James DeFiore, starting off on the wrong frame, because <laughs> that's what I do when I'm not the producer. Listen, guys, we have a good show today. We have Mark Breslin. He's the founder of Yuck Yucks, and he's going to talk about all things funny and I guess not so funny, eh, Mark, uh, considering how the last year has gone for the stand-up comedy industry. You know, the comedy business has never been a funny business. In fact, I have an agency <laughs> called Funny Business, and it's meant ironically. It's actually kind of a grim uh, group of people who are trying to, you know, make people laugh in a business that is kind of disinterested in them in a lot of ways. So um, there's always been this gap between show and business, even though it's called show business. That's right. Uh, so I, I, I spoke to you earlier on the phone off air and um, I compared you to the comedy store. Um, did you ever meet, what was the lady's name again? That famous lady oh, that owned it? Of course, Mitzi, Mitzi Shore. Um, I have very ambivalent feelings about Mitzi Shore, although you should never speak ill of the dead. Um, she died not long ago, I think last year. She's Pauly Shore's mother, you know. Um, That's right. And, um, that, which is a whole interesting story in itself. Um, I had a kind of fractious relationship with Mitzi for quite a while because in 1986, I was brought down to produce the Joan Rivers show and Mitzi was furious because she thought she should have gotten that job even though she had no experience in television whatsoever and she was legendarily impossible to work with. So she, um, you know, took me, I took her out for lunch to try to say, hey, Mitzi, I'm going to promote your show, uh, your club, don't worry, everything's great. And she said, I don't want you to have this job. And I'm going to go to Joan and I'm going to tell Joan, you can't have this job. And I said, Mitzi, if you do that, I'm going to burn down your club. <laughs> and that was the end of that. And I didn't have to worry about her ever again. She was worried that I was going to start my own club in, in L.A. And that wasn't really my interest. My interest in going to L.A. was to get away from the comedy clubs and get into the television business, which I kind of did in a in a bit of a way, but I had a really great year and a half there uh, at Fox and uh, I did really well. Um, I last I outlasted the star for whatever that means. But uh, uh, I, the reason I said that the the comparison between Yuck Yucks and, and um, the comedy store is not entirely apt is that they never franchise. They only have two locations. I'm more like the improv, which has, I think, 15 or 17 locations all across the United States, and we have all as well. We're coast to coast from Halifax to Vancouver here in, in Canada. So maybe that model is a better example. So you're the co-founder of Yuck Yucks. You started in 1976. And um, you, you, you mentioned to me that- But let me say something great about Mitzi. Please, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Nothing nice about Mitzi. Yeah, I'd I love to hear something her, nice so about Mitzi. So I feel Mitzi. like she, you know, give you the other point of view. So wait a second, just so our viewers understand, Mitzi was the founder of a place called the Comedy Store in Los Angeles. They're yes. pretty much recognized as like the legendary place for comedians to go and sort of build themselves and to, to create, um, you know, uh, good content. She she kind of was the gatekeeper of launch of launching careers, but also notoriously was uh, really difficult to get along with for most people. Is that a fair sort of like general assessment of who Mitzi is, was? It's a, it's a fair assessment that she believed in you. She didn't, whether the rest of the marketplace liked you or not, you could bomb on her stage and she would allow it, which is not the same as the improv with Bud Friedman. Budman was more like 
um, television prep. Mitzi kind of worked on her own unusual sort of arts community way. She, I think, is the Gertrude Stein of, of comedy. Um, and, you know, got behind people like, well, like Gertrude Stein got behind Hemingway and Fitzgerald. She got behind people that at that nobody was interested in. And you'd go and you'd sit there uh, in the comedy store. And unlike the improv, which was very consistent, but rarely exciting, um, Mitzi would have, you know, Sam Kinison followed by Andrew Dice Clay and then followed by some hideous juggler. You couldn't <laughs> figure out why she would put the juggler. I never found out. Just because just because she could. Just because she could, I, I think. Eh? Yeah, she had very unique and personal tastes. And if I can say something, one of the things that has happened in the comedy business over the last 30 years is the decline of idiosyncrasy. Of idiosyncrasy. Um, it used to be judgments and people's own idiosyncratic uh, judgments on who was funny and who deserved to be promoted. And now it seems to be one big industry uh, agreement. And that's never healthy. I, I, I don't subscribe to that at all. I have no interest in what the quote unquote industry likes. I, I book what I like and I book what the audience likes. I don't really care um, what network executives think is funny. That, I mean, that's great. I think if you're an up and comer, because how do you get discovered uh, as sort of like a hidden gem and as like a raw talent? If you, you know, what, what is it like your, your social media numbers have to be up. Is that the idea? Like that's when they I, take a look at you. Don't hire on people's social media numbers based on what, you know, I think is, is interesting and funny and will, might go the distance. I'm always looking for a comic that will push the needle of culture just a little bit because that's what their um, their job is not to give the public what they want. The, their job is to give the public more than they ever dreamed. So, you know, when I got behind somebody like Harlan Williams or Norm MacDonald and people thought, oh, I mean, but they're, they're just weird. But I saw something else. I saw something deeper. Yeah, I mean, I love comedy growing up as a kid because I, I always put myself in the in the in the spot of the comic and and feeling what that pressure must have been like to try to make a room full of people laugh. Like it's hard enough to make a person laugh, but then a room full of people. And then I started to notice something really interesting. And this is what I kind of want to ask you about because you've seen a million uh, stand up specials and, and routines and, and and people taking the stage in your clubs. What is it about? Um, being a comedian like that arc i'm told is like a decade before you even start to get really noticed like you have to hone this craft almost like no other and you've seen it you've seen it from um, your, yourself from people that have gone on stage for the first time and then maybe their trajectory took them to a great place as a for a comedian maybe they got their own show or something but it's usually like eight to 12 years later isn't it isn't that basically the arc yeah, that's right. I mean, the notion of, I think, in anything that, you know, you sort of just walk into a, a field and, um, you know, you work at it for a year and all of a sudden you're discovered, um, this is complete Hollywood bullshit. It doesn't exist at all. Uh, you know, uh, the guy who, uh, Malcolm Gladwell, said that there's, a, he has the theory of 10,000 hours, that before you get good in anything, you have to put 10,000 hours in. And I would just change and say change hours to sets you have to practice 
single thing. You have to be a personality and you have to know who as are you a clown? Are you a funny clown? Are you a happy clown? Are you an angry clown? You have to know that. And that takes time. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Can you give me like a give me a short list of some of the careers that sort of were launched by Yuck Yucks? Because I think it's a pretty impressive list. Sure. Well, the first one, of course, is uh, Jim Carrey. Um, he was our first big megastar to come out of our 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 place, and um, it only took him a couple of years. Um, and then he had a bit of a um, a false start. But I'll tell you about those first couple of years. Um, he. Uh, was discovered by a Toronto journalist named Bruce Blackadar, who I believe at the time was working for the star. He'd come down and seen a set, he'd seen a feature set, even though Jim was young, Jim would have been 18 maybe at the time. And he wrote a full page column in the Toronto Star the next day and quoting uh, John Landau, who was uh, reviewing Bruce Springsteen. He said, I have seen the future of comedy and it is Jim Carrey. Wow. So Jim was doing a week that that probably came out on the Thursday and on the Friday night, there was a lineup around two blocks to get in and it never stopped for Jim. And Jim was doing incredibly well and decided to go to the States, found a manager, went down there, got one of the best teams of people to put together a sitcom for him, which was Duck Factory. And it bombed. Oh, it bombed horribly. And he was back to square one. Um, and in some ways, maybe it was the best thing for him because it allowed him to kind of nurture and um, get better at his craft. And it didn't happen too fast. And he slowly started to build a real act. And he slowly started to get bit parts in movies like Earth Girls Are Easy. Uh, and there was a, a Clint Eastwood movie that he was in until finally he got in living color and that changed the whole world for him. So there's him. Then, then there's Mandel, amazing. Howie Mandel, who also, mm. you know, took off right from the start. Um, I, he was around Yuck Yucks for a good two years, three years, maybe went down to the States and of all things, got a semi-serious role on St. Elsewhere. Um, and to this day, Howie is kind of amazed that they gave him the, he had, didn't have a lot of acting training, but they were amazed that they, they gave it to him and he did a great job on it. And he never looked back. Not really, he never looked back. And then there's Norm MacDonald and there's Russell Peters. Um, I remember taking Russell Peters to Just for Laughs. I had an output deal with a big management company in, in Los Angeles and I said, you've got to see this guy, he's going to be big. So they went to see him and they came back and they said, well, we don't really get it. He's, he's not black, he's not white, he's not Mexican, what is he? I said, I think he's the rest of the world. And they didn't do anything with him. And, you know, it didn't take much longer from that till he became a big star through uh, the internet. He was one of the first big internet breakthroughs. So there's, yeah. there's, there's four and there's Jerry D and there's Nikki Payne and there's, there's, there's lots of people. Yeah. The, um, and I'm not trying to like, you know, start Tom any Green. I left out Tom Green. I shouldn't have left out Tom Green. It's a good rapper. Seth, uh, rapper. Seth Rogen. Really? He was a stand-up? I didn't know he, he was, was a stand-up. Stand he was a stand-up when he was 15 years old uh, in my Vancouver club. Wow. Yeah. Why, so <laughs> did he have faith? So, so the acts were allowed to be yeah. underage? No, no. We got a dispensation. You can, um, you can have a younger person, an underage person, perform in your club if you fill out a bunch of forms. They basically oh, okay. have to come in, do their act, and leave. They can't, they can't hang around. Interesting. 
So I was, I just wanted to know, cause I, one thing that I've learned about listening to other comics podcasts is like this, this idea that there's like this list in a black book of comics that are known for stealing jokes. Have you ever encountered that? Well, how do you handle something like that? Or do you well, just let I, the comics deal with it themselves? I, I let the comics deal with it themselves. Although I have said that I would intercede on their behalf Nobody seems to want me to do that. That's not a role people want me to have. So I steer clear of it. Um, it's not as much of a problem in Canada as there as it is in the States where there's much more at stake. And if you do a, sh uh, a joke on a television show, it's deemed to be yours. Mm -hmm. Whereas there's so few television shows here in Canada. In fact, there are none where you can perform and do your, show. well, I, there's no talk shows, I should say. Um, if, but if you do a show, if you do a uh, joke on Just for Laughs and it's somebody else's joke, that joke sort of becomes yours, which is one of the reasons Just for Laughs is so adamant about going over everybody's set line by line to make sure that there's nothing there that might belong to somebody else. Yeah, I don't think a lot of Canadians understand really how sort of renowned Just for Laughs is. Well, you know, like, it, it's the premier. It's certainly the premier. Uh, it's the premier comedy festival in the world. Really, <laughs> I didn't know it was that. Just to let the audience know, we're having a little bit of trouble with Mark's internet connection. It seems to be going from low to high. There we go. Had a bit of competition from Aspen. Had an amazing. Are we okay now? Okay now. We're okay now. Are we okay yeah, now? Yeah. So, so yeah. <laughs> so your your internet connection seems to be going from strong to low, strong to low. That seems to be. I don't know. It's possible. That, do you have two networks? Because sometimes it will bounce okay. from one to the other. But I mean, mm -hmm. what to do? I'll do it. But I have no idea. I, like I said, you're going. Let's just see if we can we can work through it. You're you're fine right now. And now, see now you're are you looking at your bars? They're go, now it's on one, and it was just on four, and it was green instead of red. Because now it's not there. It is now. You're back. Yeah. I don't even have. Yeah. I have okay. Well, just keep on going. So, like I said, I'm, okay. No worries. Um, because I was gonna say one of those names that you mentioned on the short list is sort of known for taking jokes. I won't say who it is because I don't want to cause any bad stress for you. That's why I asked that question, though. Oh, well, I'm not sure who you who you who you're thinking of. Do you want me to tell you, or should I just yeah, not sure. tell you? Russell Peters. Tell me. Is he taking? But, is he taking? Here's the, here's, the, here's the thing. This is just like something that I've seen on so many podcasts, right? And but here's the thing. What I like about Russell Peters is that he got famous on something that clearly is his own bit. So I'm just sort and I often ask comics, isn't it possible that people have the same idea for a joke? Like, hasn't that happened millions of times probably? So how do you know if someone's really taking it? Like, I don't know. It seems like a really inside baseball thing that comics should just be allowed to deal with themselves and people like me should not even <laughs> pass well, judgment. I, you know? Well, I don't, but um, it's also possible. That, there's a thing called parallel thinking. Um, where two people come up with a, a joke that's very similar. And that's because um, what they're talking about is really obvious and similar. And frankly, I find most race racial jokes, and Russell's doing primarily racial material uh, and dating material, they're a common theme. So it's not unusual that he would have something that he was doing that somebody else was doing. It's not straight stealing. It's just that he's fishing in a very, very 
thick pond. Fair enough. And then um, uh, Howie Mandel had hair, and then he looked like me. But he got his uh, first show with with a bit on talking like a baby, didn't he? Bobby's World wasn't that him? Yes, I don't think that was his first show. I think that came after um, Saint Elsewhere. That came after oh. Saint Elsewhere. But do we count Saint Elsewhere? <laughs> it was this dramatic role. How many seasons was he on Saint Elsewhere for? I don't know. Three. Yeah, Four? that's interesting. I had no idea he was on that show, but that's a little bit before my time. Wayne, he played Wayne Fiscus, who was sort of the um, funnier intern, but it wasn't a comic role exactly. I mean, for that show, it was funny, but it wasn't a, a, a thigh-slapping kind of role. He also was on a show. His first show was a show called Make Me Laugh. I don't know if you know about Make Me Laugh. I don't. Make Me Laugh is a great idea. What they did, it was a game show and uh, in Los Angeles, and... They would bring on, uh, you know, contestants who would sit in a box and then comics would come up and try to make them laugh. And the longer they didn't laugh, the more money they got. So somebody like Mandel, who was way out of, uh, you know, way over the top, would always break them. At some point, they would just break down and that would be the end. And, and, okay. and you know, the, the network would pay them whatever they were supposed to pay them. But you had a lot of people like Bruce Baum and uh, Howie Mandel and big prop comics. I think Gallagher was on that show a lot. Uh, uh, it worked best for, for prop comics and people who would be gonzo comics. Now you mentioned also, also that you've been uh, heavily, like it, it, was, it was the improv um, that really kind of set you apart, I think you said to me over the phone, is that right? No, I'm just saying that our business model is cl closer to the improv than it is to the comedy store. So Comedy do you guys only have, have they only have two. we have oh, 15 ahead. clubs James uh the comedy right. store has two that's why it's not no it wasn't a comedy store related question what i was going to ask you if you have a collaborative relationship or sort of a rivalry with like a place like second city second city is doing a book show um you go there and you see stuff that has been pre-written with sketches it is nothing like yuck yucks nothing like a stand up club so we don't think of them as being uh, competitive particularly at all. Also, their audience is a bit different. Their audience is a bit older and a bit more well-to-do. Um, <laughs> and they get a lot of tourists uh, from the States, which we don't get. And I remember during the SARS crisis, I got a call from Andrew Alexander, who at that time was uh, was the owner of, of Second City, in fact, just until recently. And he said, how bad is it? For you and I said oh it's terrible for you he said wow. about 70% of his uh, audience was for American tourists at one point they had bus tours coming into the second city hi I'm Steve Yurko and I'm Tara Sands now available from Maji Media is our new podcast for kids flashback Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. 
and thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. Yeah, I mean, the first thing I wanted to do as soon as I got of age was to go to a comedy club. That that was like everything to me. Um, I was I had thought of like possibly going down that road, but it just seemed <laughs> it just seemed like an impossible mountain to climb uh, for for a writer who was always angry and political. But um, do you have any stories that stand out from like you know take a decade by decade, like seventies to now? That anything anything that sort of stands out as being like this is why I got into this business. This is amazing. Like the Jim Carrey one is probably like you basically are responsible for launching a career in some way, right? Like it's. Yeah, I mean, I'll take I'll take uh, credit for being an, an important brick in the wall of uh, some very very uh, successful people, but that's not the only thing that I do. The other thing I do mm -hmm. is I provide some kind of a basic living for about 150 comics coast to coast that you have not heard of, but they're working. They're working almost every week, and you know, just creating that kind of almost blue collar. Um, uh, approach to to the comedy business has been a major major source of pride for me. People that you don't know have been paying their mortgages, bringing up kids, um, doing all the things that middle class people would do, doing something which is kind of outlaw and uh, kind of unusual and anti-establishment. And I feel really great about that. Well, I as you should. Um, and we got connected through Mike Bullard. Yes. And wasn't Mike part of your, that's how his career launched as well, wasn't it? Yeah. And in fact, um, Mike knew at the very beginning exactly what he wanted. I mean, he said to me, Mark, I'm not interested in headlining. I'm interested in emceeing. Now, what's interesting is that most comics don't like emceeing because it means they have to stick around for the whole show. But Mike had this idea that he wanted to be a talk show host and he knew the best way to prepare for that was to be an MC. So he knew what he wanted really early on. Um, and we gave him what we wanted and it, it worked, which was great. I, I hope he goes back to it. I hope he gets back on stage sometime in the next year or so. Um, you know, cause well, he's, he's kind of a voice that's been sorely missed. Well, we're certainly open to booking him. I, I, I don't care about the scandal and I told him that um, in the middle of the scandal and the end of the scandal is because COVID can pretty much close the clubs. But um, we, we yeah, have no problem, it's, it's have funny, no problem booking him at all. In fact, good, we did book him. I think, we uh, were, yeah, I think James, we did book him. We were open, you know, a very short time. The government allowed us to be open last summer. And I know he played the Ottawa club. He played the Oshawa club. He played the London Ontario club. We didn't get one complaint. Nobody said anything. None of the customers said, I will not be in this room with this guy. Nothing. It was nothing. There was no complaint whatsoever. Not one. 
Yeah, it was such a non-scandal. Like we had him on the podcast when he finally was able to speak um, on the Dean Blundell podcast. And, you know, and people just showed him love. Nobody wrote even any nasty comments. I, I feel like it was the scandal that slipped through the cracks of scandals. Like, you know, it didn't yeah. feel like it wasn't a Gianco Meshi situation or anything like that. Right. Like it was. No, I know. mean, I never saw it uh, as a Me Too issue. He was swept up in that Me Too uh, fervor, but to me, it was nothing more than a uh, an everyday lover's spat, and nothing more than that. Yeah. And so, did you try to do any virtual stuff during this pandemic, or is that not really something that? Yeah, we yeah, you pivoted did? quite. A, we pivoted quite a bit to um, what we call cyber comedy, and we're supplying um, a lot of uh, comic Zoom shows to corporations, because you know, here's a. Here's a situation where your workers can't work together. Morale is really low. What do you do? Hey, for a reasonable price, we can hire a comic, get all our, our employees to watch at the same time and share some laughs. Um, the only problem with that is there are only certain comics who can do that and do that well. Certainly edgy comics can't do that. And uh, part of our DNA as a company is to support edgy comics. So we can't help there. This week, on Saturday, Saturday night, our first coast-to-coast -coast, um, Zoom show with eight different comics from eight different cities all across the country. It'll all be live, and it plays to our two strengths. One, that we're an uncensored comedy club, always have been, always will be. And two, that we are the only comedy club that has a national coast-to-coast -coast presence. Yeah, and, and I feel like it could work because we so all... You want to talk about water. diversity? Yeah, no, I'm just saying. Yeah, go ahead, you, please. We're talking about diversity. The diversity is not just um, racial and gender diversity. Uh, the, the diversity is actually geographical diversity as well. So it's um, it's a it's going to be a good show. I hope as long as my my internet doesn't break down. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, how does the like? Is there like a laugh can or is there any laughter? Because otherwise, it feels like you know it might it might be. That's got to be tough on a comedian, right? Not being able to hear any laughter for the jokes. Yeah. Well, you will see a number of uh, customers uh, around the screen, and their mics will be turned on, and you will hear them laugh, and the comic will hear them laugh. And we have oh, a cool. uh, a host company that let's say we have three hundred well, three hundred customers. The host company will identify the laughers and they will turn on their mics, which is cool, because oh, the people who actually, well, there are people who watch the show, and, uh, and not the show, but I've seen this on other shows, but then wind up you know, telling their wife to make them a cheese sandwich, and you hear that on, and the kids run into the room, and you hear that. So um, these people that we're doing it with are, are good at identifying who the real laughers are and making sure that their voices are heard. So no, it's never as good as being a, in a, a room full of strangers and you're sharing laughter and there's nothing to distract you from the, from the, we're not in an ideal position anymore, you know, until yeah. I think August or September, um, we'll be back to live shows for good. And I think by December we'll be able to pack those shows. That's my guess. I'm trying to think, I hope it was a yuck yucks. I'm pretty sure it was, but, um, Janine Garofalo, like 12 years ago played. I think it was at a yuck yucks uh, in Toronto yeah. and just 
yelled and screamed all just yelled and the show that I saw she she was funny but she yelled and screamed about politics the entire time she was on stage and we were all like okay <laughs> that was interesting do you have any like bookings that you're like oh fuck this big name did not the, the did audience not do well here <laughs> for whatever reason the big names usually do well um that but I will say that you know it's not a political crowd and no, that's a big mistake Come on back. State that a lot of journalists think <laughs> that, you know, oh, no, twice. You could hear the names uh, Trump, it's really about day-to-day oh, -day life. It, the topics are uh, sex, relationships, drugs, uh, pop culture, sex, uh, drugs, uh, relationship, pop culture. This is what people are really talking about. It's very rare that there'll be some kind of um, political screed. It just doesn't seem to work. If you want to hear that stuff, there are tiny little um, clubs that do comedy nights right downtown with 30 seats, and it gets a certain reputation of having that kind of, um, you know, uh, niche marketing for comedy, and you go there. But that's a small, it's a small audience for us. Yeah, it takes a craftsman too. Like Bill Maher's pretty good at it, I guess. You know, like you know, there, there's a there's a couple old comics that were good at it. They're no longer with us. You know, George Carlin, people like that. But it, it's not easy being a political comic. There's hardly any of them. You and know? you have to be a certain age. If you're too young, the audience will just say, you know, who's this little who's this little kid who's telling me what to think? But <laughs> here in Canada, I. I recommend, you know, Kenny Robinson is really funny and his Glenn Foster's really funny and is really political. Um, so th they do exist, but it's, uh, it's tough for them to go on stage and do what they really want to do. And I've watched Kenny tell me, I'm going to go up there and I'm going to talk about this and I'm going to talk about that. And he gets up there and he can see that's not working and he falls back on some really great sex material. Yeah. And you know, it's, 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 it's funny because we, we need comedy now more than ever. I, I'd love to see the Netflix and all the other streaming services, what, what has what it's done this pandemic to their ratings for comedy specials because it's what i gravitate towards at least three or four times more than i used to well and you know yeah have you noticed this that on netflix there are far fewer comedy specials in the last year i have well they can't they can't film it anywhere right they it's it's not just that they, they've got a backlog they've realized that the um unless you're talking about a real superstar like Dave Chappelle or a Chris Rock, uh, Bill Burr, um, it's, they, they just don't draw that well. There's a niche market for it. It's cheap programming for them, but then they realize that they just don't do the numbers that they'd like to do. Yeah, and I've noticed something that actually has made me happy is that a lot, almost all of their new specials, including the, the names that you just mentioned, are the types of comics that completely reject political correctness and cancel culture and all that kind of stuff. So it hasn't actually, it, it's interesting that, that that's the content that they've chosen to go with is the one that I guess would be controversial. Well, I think those are the, those are the things that people really want to tune into because it's really hard to find anymore. You'll find them in clubs. Clubs will book those kinds of acts usually. Um, although there's, uh, there's examples where that's not true. I mean, I know I booked Jeremy Piven and he, there was some issue about him squeezing a girl's breasts at the Playboy Mansion. Hey, I've been to the Playboy Mansion. You might as well have a big sign that says, please squeeze the girl's breasts. Uh, I mean, it's meant for that, <laughs> right? So, um, 
So, and it was ne- there was never a legal case. There was just, it was just all innuendo. I booked him, but a lot of people would not have booked him. And then, of course, I booked Louis C.K., which was a, a real radical step. But you know what? Um, I got I, I looked at all the uh, the stuff online and the Twitter and the and all the feeds, and people were ten to one in favor of me booking the guy because oh, yeah. people realize what he did is nothing like what Bill Cosby did or what Harvey Weinstein did. It was a completely different situation. So um, if you felt uncomfortable about it, don't go to the show that week. But I sold out 2,400 seats in eight minutes for that show. So Oh, yeah. That was the last comedy event. Uh, sorry, I guess it would be second last. I saw um, Anthony Jeselnik in Ottawa just before the pandemic. And uh, I saw Louis C.K. at the uh, Air Canada Center, whatever it's called now. The at yeah. Uh, yeah, in in just before the pandemic as well, like 2019, I think it was. But when I noticed that that Yuck Yucks booked Louis C.K. last year, I was or whenever that was, I was completely thrilled because I thought he got swept up again um, in in the in that sort of the Me Too stuff. And you know, uh, it was interesting because. It, you know, he, he's he's a little bit of a sexual freak, like we all are probably, but he asked for consent and he never touched anyone. And I always thought that those two aspects of his story were the ones that I held on to, you know? Yeah, I know. Uh, and, and that's why it's not quite the same thing. So, um, you know, where there's, there's a... I've been around for 45 years in this. And let me tell you, in the, in the beginning days, the entire comedy business was all about getting laid. The entire music business was all about getting laid. And not just getting laid, but getting laid as often as possible. Um, yeah. It was definitely a quantity, uh, a quantity play. Not necessarily- sure that had nothing to do with play. cocaine. Nah, not necessarily. Some people did, some people didn't. There was pot, there was booze, there was everything. Yeah, I mean, again, it's 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 such a unique ecosystem, the comedy world and the world, especially the stand-up comedy. Um, I, I love listening to, I love listening, even though I don't really enjoy his comedy, I don't mean that in a bad way, he's all right, but I love listening to Joe Rogan talking about comics and their process and the things that they, that they you know, and, and the friendships that they have. And I, I was listening to him and Dave Chappelle talk last week about how you know, be nice to the bar back at the comedy club because you never know. They could be, they could have their own show in, in three years. And they cited someone that they knew at uh, at the comedy store that had been, a, it was a female actually. She was a bar back and, and, you know, people were mean to her, but Dave Chappelle was always nice to her. And now she has her own show. So I can't remember her name, but, you know, it's just an interesting ecosystem where, where you don't have to be like super good looking, you know, you don't have to be totally in shape. You just have to be funny. And it's such an honest industry. I wrote a piece last year called "If uh, You're Absolutely Yeah," right. and I wrote a piece last year called "In or in an Orwellian World, Only Comedians Can Save Us." And I talked about how all the comics, especially the ones that you mentioned that are doing Netflix specials, they can't get canceled because they don't believe in it. <laughs> you know what I mean? So they don't even play in that arena. And so Ricky Gervais, Gervais his last special was there were so many things that would have gotten anybody else canceled, but he's just like, I don't care. You know, I'll say whatever I want and it's fine, yeah. you know, and, and it works for some people. And, and I think we need to look to comedians to remember what free speech is and to remember what freedom of expression is and all that kind of stuff. So I look at a guy like you who, who has basically built arenas for free speech. And I kind of salute you for that because I think that there's a political kind of like 
accomplishment that you've made. Thank you. Well, when we first started Yuck Yucks way back in 1976, I had a couple um, things that I would not back away from. One was I wanted to create a Canadian comedy industry, meaning I would only book Americans when they were doing something the Canadians couldn't do. And the second thing that was really critical for me was I believed in absolute free speech. I would never tell a comic what to say on stage. If the audience laughed, that was good enough for me. And I might personally yeah. not like it. It doesn't really matter. My tastes are not the only metric by which I decide uh, whether a comic goes on. If the, if the audience loves it, then that's great. Yeah, and I was going to ask you whether or not, um, like you started in 1976, were you a writer, a comic, uh, not just an entrepreneur that really loved comedy? All of the three. Um, I had a degree in English literature in 1974 and had no idea what I wanted to do with it. I was interested in comedy, but no more than anybody else. Just like any typical, you know, young guy, I would listen to, you know, Bill Cosby albums and Mort Saul albums in my basement with my friends. But it was nothing more than that. I'd watch sitcoms. I always liked sitcoms. But I never dreamed I would get involved in, in actually working in, in the industry. It never even occurred to me. I was this kind of serious literateur thinking I would might write the great Canadian novel. Well, what happened was I didn't have a job when I graduated because it's York University. And what can you do with that? You can work for any taxi <laughs> company in the world. Uh, and uh, so I got a job at Harborfront the first year that it opened. And Harborfront was trying to bring to the site because the feds had put a billion dollars into buying the site. They wanted to show that that was justified because they were going to develop the property. And I was always a guy who went out every night. I went to a piece of theater. I went to see uh, I went to see music. I went to see bands. I, I was just out every night. That was my thing. And I would always criticize these older guys for booking the acts that they did. And they would say, hey, what'd you think of that act we had last night? And I would say, stunk you should really book so and so we'll book so and so and then why don't you stay and work for us the for the next year and i did everything the next year and one i fell in love with these comics and i started hosting that night and i started doing some comedy and one thing led to another and two years later when they fired all of us from harbor front and went with a completely different concept i went to a friend of mine who had a community center he was operating he was doing a folk night and the folk night um, had all these really nice folkies. And I said, could I bring my friends down? They could do sets in between the folkies, the comics, and then the folkies. He said, sure. But the comics hated the folkies, and the folkies hated the comics. So I went to the board of the community center, and I said, can I do a comedy night here? And they said, well, yeah, we have Wednesday available, the worst night in show business. And uh, we'll have to charge you $38. Where am I going to get $38? So I charged a dollar to get in. I called it Yuck Yucks. It was kind of uh, limping along for eight, nine weeks with comics, but at least they had a place to play. And then a guy from the Globe and Mail, Jack Capizza, said, hey, I hear what you're doing. Can I do an article on it? And I said, yeah, come down next Wednesday. He comes down. Room is half full. He's, I see he's writing some notes. And at the end, he says, okay, um, I think I can get something in on Saturday. I said, that's fantastic. On Saturday morning, I wake up, and there's 84 messages on my answering machine. Mark, Mark, you got to get the globe. Mark, get the globe. Go out and get the globe. So I went out and got the globe, and there was a full-page article on this 
incredible thing that was happening on Church Street. The next Wednesday, wow. I went to the club, to the community center, half an hour early, as I usually did. And there was a, I counted them. There were 970 people waiting to get in, in a room that held 86. Wow. And it never let up from there. We were so doing you put something. 100, you put 150 in though, right? No, you couldn't because it was a government thing. You had to put the regular oh, number. Okay. But um, it, it, it told us that we had something that was had some longevity. It had some sustainability. And I started to raise money. And eventually I did. And I opened up in Yorkville. Being first is everything, though, right? After that. Yeah, that's amazing. Can you remind us when... um, Yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, I... You're in and out again. Okay, I said being first is... I said said being first is important. I said being uh, uh, best is important, and knowing a lot of rich people is important. (laughs) Yeah, I, I think I'm 0 for 3, okay. <laughs> but in, in any event, um, can you remind us when we're going to see the online comedy thing that you mentioned earlier? Sure. It's this Saturday, uh, the 29th of, of May, 8 o'clock. It's about a 90-minute show. It's 12.50. You go to yuckyucks.com, and there's a link there to an Eventbrite site. Perfect. Um, Mark, thank you so much. I know you did this on like zero notice and I really appreciate it. Um, get better internet and we'll talk again. <laughs> I will do my best. Thank you. <laughs> no problem. That's Mark Breslin, everyone. He is the co-founder, I guess you would say of Yuck Yucks. Yuck Yucks, uh, for those who don't know, is like the most famous comedy club, uh, in Canada. There's a whole bunch of locations launching the careers of people like Jim Carrey and Howie Mandel and Russell Peters, um, Mike Bullard, um, Mike, thank you, Mike Bullard for actually setting up the interview and yeah, um, just sort of a legend. I, you know, I wanted to bring you, he was going to be a guest on anyways, a little bit later, I, but, uh, we had a guest bail on us today, so we put him on today, but, um, just a fascinating guy. If you, if you like sort of the subculture behind comedy and comics and the separate, the completely separate universe that they live in, um, Mark is a really interesting cat to talk to, uh, you know, Yuck Yucks opened up uh, in 1976. He's uh, He's been in this game for a long time, basically the inventor of stand-up comedy in this country. And as he just said, you know, uh, he started off uh, doing a night with folk singers and now um, look where he's at. So listen, guys, also when this pandemic is over, go to Yuck Yucks, okay? Because you're going to have a good time. I love it that... Um, he doesn't censor anything that the comic says. He lets the audience be the gauge on whether or not the comedy is good. And I respect that. I Like we were talking earlier, he brought Louis C.K. in at the sort of tail end of Louis' scandal. If you went, if you only saw, if you only read articles in Vox, uh, you probably think that that was a bad idea, but he killed it. You know, he sold out. Um, and as he said, 10 to 1, positive comments over negative. Um, a lot of these situations are, are usually and largely a media creation. These scandals, they're not real if you ask people. But in any event, um, I'm going to have Mark on uh, again, um, you know, sometime in the future. I'm going to see if I can get a whole bunch of comics to come on too, because I think that that is a world that I want to explore a little bit more. And so that was episode five of Blackballed. Thank you everyone for watching. I'll see you in about an hour on the Dean Blundell show. Okay. Thanks a lot, guys.
everywhere the imagination dares it's for the open-minded the pleasure seeker it's jeff woods with the new podcast about relationships and sexuality theme-based with special guests the blue hotel hotline at every episode climaxes with an adult bedtime story get a room and listen in at the blue hotel begins Friday, September 23rd. Hi, I'm Mercedes Nickel, four-time Winter Olympian and host of Dropping In, a podcast with Mercedes. This is a podcast where I interview a bunch of different people. I get the good, the bad, and the ugly, as well as I share my stories along the way. Now you can drop in at droppingin.com or subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube. I'll see you soon.